gonna quiet. <laughs> All right, well, our speaker for this morning's uh, gonna be busy in the next few weeks or so with a, a little prince arriving soon. We're very excited for Aaron and Lindsay. They arrived for a new baby very soon. Um, so we're really looking forward to my big brother um, sharing with us this morning. Aaron, let's give him a big warm welcome. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My title this morning is Others. And um, Langdon Gilkey, if we could have the first slide up, please. Langdon Gilkey was a young man. He graduated from Harvard University in 1940. He went to China to teach at a university there. And when the Japanese overran um, that part of China after Pearl Harbor, he was forced with about 2,000 other Westerners to go into an, intern an internment ca uh, camp or compound. And he wrote about his experience years later in a book called Shangtung Compound. Let me just, uh, this book has gripped me this week, so I'm going to read some parts from the book to you. Here he's describing how they arrived in the compound. He said, for those that are arriving, this is a book called Shangtung Compound, written by a man called Langdon Gilke, who was uh, in China when the, after the Japanese invaded Pearl Harbor. And he wrote this in his book. Soon, however... The trucks arrived and we clambered into them with our baggage. And after a 40-minute ride through the cobbled streets of the city, through the massive gates and the city walls, and out across three miles of countryside, we arrived at the compound. Curious as to what our future would be inside those walls, we climbed stiffly out of the trucks and we looked around. The compound looked like any other foreign mission um, station in China dull, gray, and institutional. It seemed roughly the size of most of them, about one large city block. There was the familiar six-foot walls that surrounded everything in China. There were the roofs of Western-style buildings appearing above the walls. There was the welcome sight of a few trees here and there inside the compound, and of course, the familiar gates at the front. Stretching endlessly on either side was a bare, flat, dusty Shangtung farmland over which we had just come. We turned to take a last glance at the landscape. The guard on our truck barked at us, and we started to slope down toward the gate. The first sight that greeted us was a great crowd of dirty, unkempt, refugee-like people staring in, standing inside the gate and, and um, coldly staring at us with resentful curiosity. Their clothes looked damp and rumpled, covered with grime and dust. Men, uh, much as men look who have just come off a shift on a road gang, my God, I thought, as I stared back at them in disgust. They look like freight yard bums. Have they cleaned themselves? They could have cleaned themselves up a little bit. And a feeling of utter dreariness came over me as I looked at them. Would we in time become as drab and disheveled as this crowd? Was this dull dirtiness to be the character of our life here? Who were these people, I wondered. With some distaste, we learned that they were earlier arrivals. Robert, if we could just get ready to go with that video. For those that just came in, that was me reading an introduction from a guy called Langdon Gilkey. He was in China just after the Japanese invaded Pearl Harbor. 2,000 Westerners were rounded up and moved to this internment camp, and he wrote about it years later in a, in a, in a book called Shang Tung Compound, which we're going to use for our lesson today. Let's go ahead with that uh, video, please, when Robert. When Eric Little and nearly 2,000 other people entered Wei Shen Camp in March 1943, Uncertainty and fear were the order of the day. No one knew how the Japanese would treat them, how long they would be imprisoned, or even who would win the war. And as time passed, anger, boredom, and even despair became greater enemies than fear. One of the internees penned these words, Wei Shen, the test. Whether a man's happiness depends on what he has or what he is, on outer circumstances or inner heart, on life's experiences, good and bad, 
or on what he makes out of the materials those experiences provide. I was nine when I went into camp and it's quite interesting actually because I can always recall being herded together in the old British Army barracks and being made to walk along the road to the station. I can recall at the age of nine I was carrying two suitcases, my father was carrying two suitcases and my mother was wheeling a pram with my young brother who was 18 months old. It was, um, it was in many ways frightening. We went down on the train not knowing what would be at the other end, having heard a great deal about what had happened in Asia in camps and so forth and so on. We didn't trust the Japanese one bit. We arrived there and were taken by trucks to the compound, knew nothing about it, and came in and noticed, needless to say, the barbed wire. We noticed the guns. We, I remember thinking, my God, I'm walking in here and I'm not going to be able to get out. Now this had been, a, this was a, what shall I say, beautifully equipped mission compound built in the early part of the century. Buildings were in good shape, but there was nothing in them. All the pipes had been torn out, of course. The furnaces had been torn out, and so forth and so on. There was no running water. There was no heating. There was no nothing. The camp was a mess, but probably the major part of that were the latrines. They were overflowing, smelling, unpleasant. I think that almost everybody thought something ought to be done with about this, but nobody did it until the Catholic priests, there were a number of them, and sisters went in and did it. In the camp, there were no Chinese coolies to do the hard labor, no servants to cook and clean. Bankers and missionaries had to stoke fires and pump water. Society ladies and prostitutes peeled vegetables together and people who had lived all their lives with comfort and privacy suddenly had neither. In a dorm, the men and the women who were single men and women were put into large classrooms and they had uh, perhaps a foot, foot and a half between beds. And uh, there was a lot of, lot of uh, tension over how, how much space there was, how much space your neighbor was taking. When Eric entered Weishin... Thank you. Okay, if we could have a slide two up, please, Robert, and uh, some notes. Um, each person, as we heard there, had a bed with 18 inches between the next bed. They had three th foot at the bottom of their bed in which to hold all of their worldly possessions. 2,000 people were crammed into an area the size of a city block. It was a very tough place to live, and Gilkey describes that when he arrived there, he was essentially a secular person. He believed religion was fine if people wanted to choose religion, but he didn't believe that people needed religion. He didn't believe people needed a God. He thought it was very possible to have a good life, uh, be a good person, and have a good society completely without God or religion. And why did he believe that? With his naturalistic and secular beliefs, he believed people were rational. He believed people were inertly good. He believed that people had an inner sense of fairness and rationality. So these 2,000 people, they were secured into this compound. They were left to oversee themselves, and they had Japanese guards ensuring um, that they did not escape. It wasn't like some of the cruel concentration camps we've heard of. They did have uh, much freedom, but they were pretty much left to organize themselves. They organized themselves into committees and workforces. They managed to build a hospital. They organized three different teams for cooking. They had teams for even cleaning the toilets and people to repair uh, damaged clothing. They had people to repair shoes and even formed teams to build and fix things, to build broken beds and make beds and other broken items. And in the book, Gilkey describes how he became completely disillusioned. Over two and a half years, he came to learn that everyone acted selfishly. People struggled to share, and he learned, he was rudely awoken to the fact that people were cruel. Gilkey, he became part of the housing committee, and he tells some incredible stories where they have to try and um, resolve the issues of space. 
And there were some people had more space and more rooms and families with young children had any. And he had to solve these problems. He had to get the task. He had the task of getting people to move rooms so there's more fair and equal distribution of space, especially for the families with young children. And he was very optimistic when he started. He felt that people would understand. People were rational. People would understand the, the situation. And he was fairly optimistic to how people would respond to his suggestions that they would maybe need to change their living arrangements. He felt people were understanding and compassionate deep down and that they would understand. But here's what he said after struggling with every single example, no matter whether they were old or young, educated or uneducated, religious or non-religious, Christian or Catholic, every single example he came up. And here's what he said. Such experiences with ordinary human cussedness naturally stimulated me to do a, a good deal of thinking in such time as I had to myself. He was a thinker. He said, my ideas as to what people were like and as to what motivated their actions were undergoing a radical <laughs> revision. People generally, I knew, and I could not exclude myself, seemed to be much less rational and much more selfish than I'd ever guessed. Not at all the nice folk I'd always thought them to be. They did not decide to do things because it would be a reasonable and moral to act in that it would be, but because that course of action suited their self-interest. Afterward, they would find rational and moral reasons for what they had already determined to do. The educated, the uneducated, they were no different in this respect. Religious and non-religious, struggled greatly with these traits. There was a lot of missionaries in the Western compound, including Christian and Catholic, and he discovered everybody was selfish under pressure. Everybody was cruel. Everybody looked out for number one. Everybody looked out for themselves, and everybody struggled to share. These were universal traits. He noticed the only difference between the religious and the non-religious was the religious had wonderful moral reasons to justify the behavior. They had all the language. Let me just take a wee bit of time to read a few of his quotes about some of the uh, realizations and conclusions that he came to. Just take a few minutes just to read a few and we're going to move on. But he said, those humanists who insist that men are naturally wise and good enough to be moral seemed to me to be continually refuted by the patent persistence of dangerous selfishness. Dangerous selfishness among people whose intentions were good. Those religious perfectionists who believe that pious Christians are holy and holy people are good were refuted by the intolerance and lovelessness, the intolerance and lovelessness of many of the pious. Many of the religious ones he came to realize when he tried to get them to move would say, you need to come back tomorrow because I need to discuss it with my husband and we need to pray about this situation to find out God's will, whether or not we should move into a smaller so that family with, with young children can get more space. We need to seek God on the matter. <laughs> Some of the stories he tells. Against both, therefore, the evidence revealed that it is above all things difficult to be good and that in all of us, the wise, the idealistic, and the religious alike lie deep forces beyond our easy control which often push us seemingly in spite of ourselves into selfish acts. There's something he realized within human beings that pushes them towards selfish acts. And those selfish acts were not what the seafood store does, okay? Thanks to the one person that got that, but... Um, he later goes on to say, our camp experience demonstrated that two things can safely be said about mankind. First, it seems certain enough that man is immensely creative, oh they were, ingenious and courageous in the face of new problems as our experience of society tells us and they were able to create a fully functioning society, people were able to be um, uh, uh, helpful and, and solve problems, they were able to be courteous when the pressure wasn't on, and they were able to actually even get on and enjoy themselves and have some sort of fun. But 
it was equally apparent that under pressure, he loves himself and his, and his own more than he will ever admit. He loves himself and his own more than he will ever admit. He goes on to say later on, in each of our crucial moral issues, this pattern repeated itself over and over. The more educated and respectable people defended their self-concern with more elegant briefs. We came indeed to have a grudging respect for the open rascal. He at least was forthright in admitting his selfishness. And he preferred the ones that were just outright, no, you're not getting in, get out or we're going to bar you. <laughs> There's no way anyone's getting our space as opposed to the moral, religious, pious, holy types that said they had to pray about it and seek God's will, whether to be kind and generous or not. He goes on to say, sin may be defined as an ultimate religious devotion to a finite interest. It is an overriding loyalty or concern for the self. An overriding concern for self, its existence and its prestige, and for the existence and prestige of a group. From this deeper sin, that is, from this inordinate love of self, from this inordinate self-love, and it's for itself and its own group, whether that group be the family unit, whether it be the religious unit, the self-love of, of self and the group. From it stem the moral evils of indifference, injustice, prejudice, and cruelty to one's neighbors. Self-love leads to the fruit of issues of injustice and indifference and other destructive patterns of actions that we call sins. So, he became radically disillusioned and it began to knock him away from his secularism. He became disillusioned with his atheism. He became dis disillusioned with secularism and naturalism. He, be he learned to realize that people are actually sinful. He didn't learn that from a theology book. He learned it from the reality of people under pressure. You see, when people are not under pressure and luxury and life is good, they can act in reasonable ways. But we see what people are like when there's a Hurricane Katrina. Remember Hurricane Katrina? Can you remember the violence that erupted in the stadiums? And you, you, when the pressure comes, and you see in your workplace, people can seem nice. And it's the test is pressure of our characters. You realize people are sinful. He realized people are incapable of not being selfish. They're incapable of not being cruel. They're incapable of not being self-obsessed. And they're incapable of not being self-centered. But he not only became disillusioned with secularism, he became disillusioned with religion because the religious people were every bit as bad as everyone else and sometimes worse. But in the middle of the book, there's one piece of the book that shines and stands out. Gilkey himself, he even admitted that he struggled in the compound with selfishness. He struggled with self-centeredness, and he wasn't proud of his own behavior in the camp. But there was one ray of light, and there was a man living there by the name of the next slide, please, of Eric Liddell. He calls him Riddle in the Brook because he changes every name, but it's Eric Liddell. He's a Scottish missionary in China at the time. He won a gold medal at the Olympics in 24. And his main event was 100 meters, but because the 100 meter race was on a Sabbath, he chose to run a 400 meters, which wasn't his race, and he won gold in that Paris, I think it was the Paris Olympics. Some of you maybe have seen the film that uh, features his life, Chariots of Fire. This is what Gilkey says in the book Shang Tung Compound about this man. He says, this man, more than anyone brought about the solution of the teenage prod problem was Eric Ridley. The teenage problem was the teenagers were getting up to um, no good sexually in the basement in groups. And the man who more than anyone brought about the solution to the teenage problem was Eric Ridley or Liddle. It is rare indeed when a person has a good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. And often in an evening of the last year, I headed for some pleasant rendezvous with my girlfriend. I would pass the game room. And peer in to see what the missionaries had cooking for the teenagers. 
And as often as not, Eric Ridley or Lidl would be bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, warm, interested, pouring out all of himself into this effort to capture the minds and imaginations of those penned-up youth. If anyone could have done it, he could. A track man, he had won the 440 in the Olympics for England in the 20s and then had come to China as a missionary. In camp, he was in his middle 40s, lithe and springy of step and above all, overflowing with good humor and love of life. He was aided by others, to be sure, but it was Eric's enthusiasm and charm that carried the day with whole effort. And shortly before the camp ended, he was stricken suddenly with a brain tumor, and he died the same day in the camp. And one woman in an interview you can see on YouTube says, a light went out over the whole camp. Grown men cried when Eric Liddell, the Scottish Olympic champion, missionary to China, died. The entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. There was a quality seemingly unique to this missionary group, namely, naturally, without uh, pretense to respond to a need which everyone else recognized only to turn aside. And much of this went unnoticed, but our camp could scarcely um, have survived as well as it did without it. Could I maybe get my phone, Lindsay, because it's got a clock on it? Thank you. Eric Liddell's life modeled one thing. I'm going to sum it up in one word, others. And finally, as Gilkey thought about his experience in the camp, this is my last quote from the book, he says this. From this we can perhaps now see what the man of real faith is like. He is the man whose center of security and meaning lies not in his own life, but in the power and love of God. A man who has surrendered an overriding concern for himself. A man who has surrendered overriding concern for himself so that the only really significant things in his life are the will of God and his neighbor's welfare. Such faith is intimately related to love, for faith is an inward self-surrender, a loss of self-centeredness and concern, which transforms a man and frees him to love. I'm going to come back to that. But that was the thoughts of a man from over 70 years ago. What about today? Have we progressed? Have we improved? Have we changed? Has there been significant progress in the past 70 years? 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 says this, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of self. Next slide, please. Here's part of a Guardian um, uh, article, newspaper written on the 2nd of March 2016. It is entitled, Me, Me, Me. Are we living through a narcissism epidemic? And this is uh, what it says. It says, when we talk about, um, when we describe an explosion of modern narcissism, it's not the disorder, but the rise in narcissistic traits. Examples are everywhere. Donald Trump epitomizes the lack of empathy, the self-regard, and critically, the radical overestimation of his own talents and likability. Katie Hopkins personifies the perverse pride the narcissist takes in not caring for others. No, she writes in The Sun about the refugee crisis, I don't care. Show me pictures of coffins, show me bodies floating in the water, play violins and show me skinny people looking sad, I still don't care. Those are the loudest examples, blaring like sirens but there's a general hubbub of narcissism beneath, which is conveniently, for observation purposes at least, broadcast on social media. It has seven strands, it goes on to say. Authority, self-sufficiency, a belief that you've achieved everything on your own, your own grandiosity and greatness, superiority, exhibitionism, exploitativeness, vanity, and entitlement. It goes on later, the damage narcissism brings can be quite amorphous and ill-defined. Much of our distress, McDonald notes, comes from a sense of disconnection. 
We have a narcissistic society where self-promotion and individuality seem to be essential. Yet in our hearts, that's not what we want. We want to be part of a community. We want to be supported when we're struggling. We want a sense of belonging. But being extraordinary is not a necessary component to being loved. There, she says, all is not, like, no, all is not lost. And MacDonald picks out five principles of self-improvement. And for each one, you could look into the Bible and see uh, these five principles that she points out are the solution to narcissism are repeated over and over in the teaching of the Bible. Number one, gratitude. Number two, modesty, or we could say humility. Number three, compassion for self and others. Number four, mindfulness. Number five, community. Some of these are obvious. Modesty is an antidote to self-love, and some have practical application. Lastly, Pat McDonald wrote a paper called Narcissism in the Moral Modern World from research, and she says, narcissistic traits have reached epidemic proportions with serious consequences. Ever-increasing levels of greed, self-obsession, superficial relationships, arrogance and vanity are everywhere apparent and not making any of us happier with common mental health problems on the increase, especially among the young. So this article is pointing to an observation that we may or may not be aware of that's uh, happening in our culture right now. There's a rise in narcissistic traits. And there is an idea behind the system that is influencing our culture that has changed and developed. Of course, selfishness and self-obsession has always been an issue, as the Bible clearly relates, but there's, there's, there's an increase, and it comes from ideas. And ideas um, are, are powerful because they shape a generation, a culture, a mindset, a worldview that young people are brought up into. And it's, and, it, and it's powerful, and we must understand our culture to reach our culture. Missionaries must understand the people they're trying to reach. You see, there's a rise in narcissistic traits, and each of the seven strands, there's one thing in common. Me, me, and me. That's the seven common strands. It's all about me. There's a, there's, basically, the article, for me, it points, there's an increase in the rise of people being lovers of Self. 2 Timothy 3 2, let me read it again. Understand this in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. We're truly in the last days. Number five, when Jesus came to earth, he brought with him, slide five, please, Robert. He brought with him the kingdom. Jesus taught and revealed the kingdom. The kingdom would be the rule of God in the hearts of men and women. The kingdom would be entered by those who choose by faith and repentance to follow Jesus and to make Jesus their Lord, their Master, their King, and their Savior. And this kingdom would be built on the foundation of sacrificial, selfless, and loyal love. Love for God and love for others. And Jesus revealed the kingdom of heaven. He revealed and demonstrated his sacrificial, selfless, and loyal love, even ultimately in his death, even death on a cross. He revealed the culture of heaven. He taught his followers should pray that the culture of heaven would be revealed on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus introduced a counterculture, a way of thinking, living, and behaving that was starkly different to the culture of our world, as dark as different as light is from dark. This culture, it would be a culture of love, love for God and love for others. Man's transformation would come by a complete renovation and renewal of the heart. The kingdom would be the rule of God in the hearts of man. It would be a transformation from the inside out. And to enter that kingdom requires faith and repentance. Jesus taught you come into the kingdom. You come through the gate by faith and repentance. And this involves death to self. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> this is a message that if men can grasp on Father's Day, we can see 
that the paradox of the kingdom is the way to fulfillment, the way to true life, the way to greatness is to die. It's to die to self, to self-centeredness, to self-absorption, to self-righteousness. Death is essential to be unconditionally um, to be able to unconditionally love. Let me say that again. Death to self is essential to be able to unconditionally love. You cannot unconditionally love without first dying to self. And it's described in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, where we're told all about love, but one of the things is love is not self-seeking. So as long as self-absorption, self-obsession, self-preservation remains, it's not possible to demonstrate love because love is not self-seeking. The message says love cares more for others than self. And this love is only possible when we learn to die to self and learning to daily and moment by moment deny self. That's what Jesus taught. He taught the way of the kingdom. He taught the way to rise in the kingdom. He taught the way to true joy. The, the, the way to true joy is not more self-obsession. The way to more joy is not more, self, um, more, more self-obsession. The way to true joy, to true fulfillment, to true life, when you lose your life, then shall you find it as death to self to self-centeredness, self-righteousness, enables us to discover the kingdom, to live in the kingdom, and find true meaning. Matthew 16, 24 and 25 says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Must deny themselves. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And uh, disciples of Jesus, they're those who deny themselves. They take up their cross. If you were to deny somebody of something, you would not give them what they desire or want from you. So to deny yourself means to give, not to give yourself the indulgence of doing what this sinful nature desires. And remember... Because this sinful nature is self-centered, it's selfish. And as Christians, we still have this sinful nature. And there's a battle that still wages a war inside of us. And so we're not exempt. There is opportunity, there is glory, there is beauty, there is sacrificial love in many Christians that I've experienced from many of you. There's beautiful examples of sacrificial selfless love every day from Christians. And that's the beauty and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. But there's also the sinful nature which creates sinful, selfish desires in us. But the difference is we have the Holy Spirit. The difference is that those um, desires, although they remain, we can have victory. We can deny them and we can have the victory as Galatians 5.16. It comes by living in grace and walking in the power of the Spirit. It says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify. That means satisfy, indulge, or give pleasure to. Sometimes it's nice to indulge the selfish ambitions and desires, isn't it? It's nice to indulge, isn't it? That's why it's so attractive, isn't it? Because we want to indulge. It assumes that's right into believers. The reality is there is a sinful nature. The reality is we will experience sinful, selfish, self-obsessed desires. That's a given. But what also the truth is that we have the Spirit of God, and if we live in the Spirit, moment by moment, step by step, day by day in faith, that we, it says you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature or the flesh. So Jesus, he taught about a better culture, a better kingdom, and a better way to live. And this kingdom... It's like a pearl of great price, which when a merchant finds it, he's willing to sell everything he has to buy it because it's so beautiful and it's so precious and such is the beauty of the kingdom that Jesus revealed. Jesus taught that he is the gate and the way into the kingdom is through the gate by faith in him and repentance, which involves a renewal of our minds. It says you'll be transformed by the renewal of of your mind. 
Repentance, however, doesn't just mean saying sorry for all the wrong things we've done. This is what Tim Keller says. True repentance starts when I admit that my whole life has been permeated by self-centeredness, self-absorption, and self-righteousness. And this self-centeredness does not only permeate my bad deeds, but even my good deeds, which are done to satisfy me, to fulfill me, to help me find worth and value, to give me a sense of significance and meaning, to help me find happiness, and to build a great name for myself. The Tower of Babel Syndrome. They wanted a name for themselves. Christianity starts when I realize my problem is me first, and the solution starts by faith and repentance. And it means learning to move from me first to denying myself. Now, denying myself it doesn't sound very attractive. It doesn't sound very exciting. It doesn't, sound, it doesn't really pump you up, does it? But if we could see that the counterculture of the kingdom, this is the way to greatness. This, the way to rise in the kingdom is to reduce in and of ourselves. Jonathan Pearson, next slide, please. please. He's a millennial... Uh, he's a millennial... Actually, I'm going to skip what he says, and I'm going to move forward. He's a millennial uh, pastor of 1,400 people. In fact, I'll just say one thing that he says. He talks in his book um, about the millennial generation, which are the 30s and, and 20s, and he's got some interesting insights that he believes a shift needs to take place in order for um, this, this culture that we're talking about to rise up into leadership. Well, I'm just going to read one thing. He says, love is selfless. He says this in the chapter called Moving From, I think you can see it up there actually, um, from selfishness to love, he calls that. That's one shift. He says, love is selfless. That's what love is really about. Love isn't about liking something a lot or just about our special someone. Love is being selfless and giving up what is valuable so that someone else can be blessed. Love isn't about liking something a lot or just about loving our special someone. Love is about being selfless and giving up what is valuable so that someone else can be blessed. What did 1 Corinthians 13, 5 say? Love is not self-seeking. So here's the key, a heart that is transformed and controlled by the love and grace of God so that his love compels or controls us. Remember what Gilkey said in seven, slide seven. What did Gilkey say? Let's go back to what he said. I'm going to draw this to a close. He said, such faith is intimately related to love. For faith is an inward self-surrender a loss of self-centeredness and concern which transforms a man and frees him to love. How do we become changed? We become changed by a change in our heart. The kingdom is about the rule of God. The king is all about our heart. We have a will, we have emotions, we have a mind, we have thoughts, we have a behavior, we have our experiences. And we try to control these and to change these, but they all flow from the heart. And so we can try to control our emotions. We try to control our thoughts. We try to control our mind. But Jesus said, you don't clean a cup from the outside in. You clean a cup from the inside out. And that's not a one-off event that takes place just at salvation. You're like, okay, I'm clean now. I believe it's a daily, ongoing, moment-by-moment experience where God needs, you see, if my heart is so gripped with his love, his sacrificial and selfless love. If my heart is, when I'm going into workplace, that I'm just so consumed and say, God, just, just tell me to respond to love, to everything that happens today, just to respond with your love. And then moment by moment, the thought will be to respond with selfishness. The thought might will come to respond with tit for tat and to, to, you know, to take retaliation, but I'm just coming back to saying, God, cause me to respond in love. Let love have the ultimate victory. Let's overcome evil with good. Let the love of God control and change our hearts moment by moment and day by day. And uh, slide eight, as we're drawing this to a close, Dallas Willard, slide, slide eight. 
he wrote a book called Renovation of the Heart, and he says this, what we can surely say is that those who are dead to self are not controlled in thought, feeling, or action by self-exaltation or by the will to have their own way, but are easily controlled by love of God and neighbor. That's, if, if we were controlled, if His love compelled us, we would be controlled by love of God and love for neighbor. But it comes to those who are dead to self. <laughs> you see how mutually exclusive they are. It has to come to a daily dying to self. That's what Jesus says. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's a death to self. It's a daily ongoing. And agape love can only begin to flow through us once we have died to self. And it's death to self which is taking up our cross and denying self, then able to love selflessly. Why is the kingdom so radical? Why has it changed the world? Because once the human heart is renewed and freed from self-centeredness, it is now free to focus on God and others. And we see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, don't we? The priest and the Levite, funnily enough, were the religious ones. But their religion made no difference, as it didn't in Shangtung compound. Their theological beliefs and observations and great efforts made no difference because they were me-first, self-centered, self-obsessed, and missed the opportunity in front of them. And Jesus uses the Samaritan as an example of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to love our neighbor, and that means death to self, to self-centeredness and self-absorption, to free us, to focus on others, Last slide, and this is about General William Booth, and then we're going to have a video, please, Robert. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army in London, England, was near the end of his life. His health was poor. He was going to be unable to attend the Army's annual convention, and Booth had become an invalid, and his eyesight was failing him. No one knew that he would not live to see another Christmas. And somebody suggested that General Booth would send a telegram or a message to be read at the opening of the convention as an encouragement to the many soldiers of the Salvation Army that would be in attendance following Christmas and their many hours of laboring, labor ministering to so many others through the holidays and the cold winter months. And both agreed to do so. And knowing that the funds were limited and desiring not to use any more money than necessary so that as much money as possible could help to use the many people in need, General Booth decided to send a one-word message. He searched in his mind and reviewed his years of ministry, looking for the one word that would summarize his life, the mission of the army, and encourage the others to continue on. And when thousands of delegates met, the moderator announced that Booth would not be able to present because of his failing health and eyesight. And gloom and pessimism swept across the floor of the convention. Then the moderator announced that Booth had sent a message to read with the opening of the first sentence, uh, session. He opened the telegram and read the one word message. Others. Signed, General Booth. Let's stand to our feet. Robert, if you could play, or oh, come to the altar. Put that song on for us. Just dim the lights. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you demonstrated love. Greater love than no, has no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. And you came and you died upon the cross that we could receive a new heart, that we could be transformed and cleansed from the inside out, that we could come into your kingdom. Just put the sound down a little bit. You came, Lord Jesus, to seek and to save the lost. And you transformed our hearts, and we come before you today, Lord. We come before your cross. And Lord, personally, Lord, I start for myself and say, God, I confess so many times, Lord, the sinful nature, Lord, is just so consumed on me, Lord. My name, my things, my desires. Lord, I'm so self-obsessed and self-concerned at times, Lord. And I just cry out, Lord, 
that you would transform my heart and transform our hearts, oh God. Once again, Lord, that daily, Lord, we would come to you, Lord Jesus, and allow you by the power of your Spirit to transform us, to renew us. We cry out, Lord, for a radical touch of the agape, selfless, sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We touch our hearts, Lord. Lord, that we would be compelled by love. Lord, that we would turn away from self. We would learn what it means to deny self. We would learn what it means to die to self. We would learn what it means, Lord, to allow the seed to go onto the ground and die, that I may bear much fruit for you, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are the ultimate sacrifice. And you started a revolution, Lord, a new culture. And it was a culture of love, love for God, love for others. A death to self and concern for myself, my own family, my own situation, my own group. Lord, it was an unconditional, unconditional love and boundless love, Lord, that when many others, Lord, are indifferent, Lord, many others ignore the problems and the situations around them, Lord. The hearts of those in your kingdom are so compelled by your love Lord, that we go to the man that's been beat up by the robbers. We go to this situation, Father. We reveal love to our brothers and sisters, Lord. Lord, the, the, Lord, we struggle at times, Lord, with jealousy, Lord. We struggle at times, Lord, and it's because of self, Lord. Lord, it's because of self, because someone's doing better than I am, Lord. And Father, we say we're sorry, Lord, when we're jealous. We're sorry when our hearts, Lord, Lord, as deceitful as they can be. And we just pray, God, for a revival in our hearts, Lord. A revival, Lord, starts in me, God. It starts in my heart, Lord Jesus. Lord, would you forgive us when we allow our hearts to become as hard as stone, Lord Jesus Christ. And they're unmoved, Lord, by the needs for others, Lord, because we're so hurting, Lord, and broken by the own experiences of our own life. And we pray that your beautiful love would flow in this place right now, Father that you would heal every broken heart and our disappointment and our pain, oh God. And you would set our hearts alight and ablaze with the unconditional, sacrificial, selfless love of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself and died on the cross and says, if you believe in me, if you will surrender your life and follow me with all your heart and love me, if you seek me and seek me with all your heart, then shall you find me. If you, if you way that you find life is by losing your life, Lord Jesus, we want to lose our life for you. We want to give our lives wholly and completely to you, Father. So like that riddle, Lord, regardless of the compounds we find ourselves in, regardless of the restrictions and the oppression, regardless of the circumstances of our life, Lord, we may be in a Japanese internment camp, but Lord, your love, nothing can separate us from your love. No persecution, difficulty, hardship, nothing. We will still find, like Eric Little, somebody to love, somebody to help, somebody, Lord, that we're not concerned about our own needs, our own situation, our own groups. Lord Jesus, but we're concerned to transform others, to pour our life out, that like William Booth, Lord Jesus, that you would release in us, Lord, an obsession not with self, but an obsession with Jesus Christ, with love for God and love for others, Lord. Love that is practical. Lord, love that moves. Love that is stirred. Love that goes. We pray it in Jesus' name. Stir in us, Lord, a fresh seeking, Lord. God, would you cause us to seek you afresh? Would you cause us, Lord, to come before you with our hearts and to give you our hearts, Lord, and say, God, transform my heart. Today, Lord, I want to be motivated by love. And I tell you what, people, it will transform you because you will walk past a person. And instead of ignoring and judging them, you know what will happen? You will overflow with compassion and you'll walk past on the way to work and you'll see someone with new eyes because you'll say, oh, Lord Jesus, would you help that person? Lord Jesus, I don't know what's going on in that person's life. And you'll start praying. You know when I start crying, when you seek God and seek Him with all your heart, He does change you. Just play that once more. We're going to sing it together. 
But it does change you. You start to see your eyes become opened and something strange happens. You're like, I just walked past somebody and all of a sudden I'm concerned for them. I'm concerned for their spiritual well-being. I'm concerned. I, I passed a child at the bus stop and I said, God, may that child grow up to know you. May you protect that child. And my car just driving past them. I'm like, what's going on? I'm saying, God, would you come, Lord, just take this heart, Lord. Would you just remove this heartness, this, this self-obsession. Remove my Lord own desires for my own name and my own greatness and my own things, oh God, and just Lord, it's all about love for you and love for others. Would you just come, Lord, and capture this heart once again, Lord. Overwhelm this heart with your love. And I just prayed for that wee boy and said, Lord, I don't know what that wee boy's going through. Just, Lord, look after him. Keep him safe from evil and danger and sickness and harm. And send Christians into his life that will bring good news and bring him into salvation. Save him from the drugs that are all around him. Save him from, oh, destroying his life. And may he grow up to know you. And people, God will open our eyes. My cry in my heart. I've struggled to communicate what's in my heart and I just pray by God's Spirit somehow he would take that mishmash of a word and just such a mixture of different things thrown together there. I just, you know, as Father's Day, why go with that? I, I don't know, I just trusting and obeying that the Father, you know, because it's Father's Day, why, why focus on that? I believe because the way to become great fathers and spiritual fathers is just to be full of love because we just love our kids. No matter what tantrums they throw. No matter, you know, we just love them, don't we? We just, and they're all so different. And one, will be, you know, doesn't matter how child, we just love them. We just love the teenagers. We cry out for the teenagers of this town. And we thank you for Stephen and Zara and the vision of synergy, Lord. We cry out for the teenagers. Let the heart of Eric Little, Lord, be upon the Scottish missionaries that are here in this town. Lord, provide for them more helpers to reach these teenagers, Lord. Just let them love the teenagers, Lord. Father, even if there's no apparent signs of salvation, let them just keep loving. Just keep loving. Just keep loving. Lord, they may be rebellious and, oh, difficult, but Lord, may you anoint Stephen and Zara and Allison and all the team that we're working with them, Lord. That the love for the teenagers in this town, Lord. Would you give us more money, Lord, to employ more people? Would you give us greater strategies and greater vision, Lord? Would you, Lord, help us to see this place full, Lord Jesus, this building full of teenagers in love for you, O oh God. We pray for an increase, Lord. We pray that you would move in this place. Let's sing this together. Let's put this sound up. Let's just